Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President, Founder, and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Today I will act as the moderator, and I want to introduce you to two of our brilliant colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Adam Rosen, who's uh, an assistant managing attorney and has been with the firm for well over 10 years, maybe 11 at this point, and T.J. Sachs, who's been with the firm almost seven years. Today we're going to discuss... Uh, complex issues. Uh, actually, their work is deals with a lot of complex issues in um, the special projects department of the firm. But today we're going to talk about the L1 intra-company transfery kinds of issues. So as most of you may already know what an L1 visa is, it's basically for individuals transferring from one company to another, which are somehow related to each other. Uh, parent, subsidiary, branch, affiliate, joint venture type of relationships. And the person ha should have worked for a minimum of one year abroad as either a senior manager or as an executive or in specialized knowledge uh, for one year in the past three years, within the past three years before coming to the United States and with the intention of continuing to work at a U.S. company related to that employer, either in an executive capacity, a managerial capacity, or a specialized knowledge role. And then the U.S. and the foreign entity must fall into one of the law's definitions of parent, subsidiary, affiliate, branch office, or joint venture. For each of these terms, the U.S. immigration law has very specific definitions. So with that, I'm going to invite uh, Adam to maybe speak a little bit about uh, you know, the, the entire sort of qualifying relationship between the two, uh, between the company abroad and the U.S. company. But let me also briefly touch upon that if the definitions are not satisfied, uh, for whatever reason, because especially as the government keeps tweaking and modifying how they're going to interpret certain terms, then the individual would not be eligible, for example, for the L1A or the L1B. So it's really important to understand that not every single person that simply by virtue of a relationship that you may understand in ordinary English as, yeah, this person's a manager or this person's an executive may not meet the legal and statutory definitions of those terms. Also, we're seeing a lot of requests for evidence or RFEs, which are becoming more and more common, especially for the, over the last several years. They have become extremely common. In fact, sometimes people are even saying that L1s can be almost as, if not more difficult than getting H1B approved, because a lot of times we don't have to wait for, like, unlike the H1, which you can only file during, you know, the March if it's a fresh H1. With L1, you can use it throughout the year. So a lot of people are setting up companies for that purpose. Um, and so what's happening is that the government is looking at this under the microscope and the employers sometimes tend not to pay enough attention to documenting every little thing to ensure that the legal and statutory definitions are met. So with that, let me jump to you, Adam, about what is the sure. qualifying relationship? 
So this applies for whether you're whether a company's uh, seeking to employ someone in L1A as a manager or executive or L1B in specialized knowledge. So there there has to be this qualifying relationship between the company abroad that the beneficiary spent uh, the time working and the U.S. company is actually sponsoring the employment. This means that the foreign company where the person was working um, are related is either a parent, subsidiary, affiliate, or branch. Um, and just because the two companies share the same name, they're not automatically going to meet the legal requirements for the qualifying relationship. Um, the companies are going to have to show this um, relationship through specific documentation, like share certificates. They may need to show the register of all the shares. So let's say if there's somebody who owns a majority own a majority a portion of the foreign company and the U.S. company, just showing the certificate for that individual's shares in the two companies may not be enough because you'd need to show that the remaining how many remaining shares there are and that they're just a minority of shares compared to what this particular person holds. And it's important to show this documentation up front to USCIS because if you don't, they're going to question it and um, it delays your case, as Sheila pointed out. Correct. And so let's now look at the difference that we just talked about between the L1A and the L1B visa and how does that work in terms of uh, going through the definitions, TJ? Sure, certainly. So I think Adam touched upon this a little bit, but the L1A is for managerial or executive intracompany transferees, while the L1B is for a specialized knowledge intracompany transferee. Managers are people who, who essentially actively manage the organization or any part of the organization, or they manage a central function of the organization. You generally see managers either oversee the work of other supervisors, managers or professionals, and professionals are, are generally individuals or positions that require a, at least a bachelor's degree in a specific field, or they manage an essential function over their organization. And it's important to note that, that the manager has to essentially exercise discretion over the day-to-day -day operations of the company or the, the function in which they manage. They can't really work on the, the hands-on day-to-day tasks of the company. Um, and it also, it's also important to note that simply being called a manager is not enough. You know, you can't just show that the, the job title is a managerial, you know, title. Um, you need to show that the, what the person is actually responsible for. Are they responsible for managing other employees, other professional employees, or other managers? Or are they responsible for managing an essential function of the organization? Generally, a functional, functional manager cases are more difficult compared with managers who just oversee the entire organization or division of the organization. It's pretty much because when you, when you have a, a manager who oversees you know, uh, the entire organization or division, you can show an organizational chart. You can, show, you can visualize essentially how they're managing and how they're managing other employees, other managers or other professional employees. The challenge with functional manager cases, however, is that the Beneficiary still can't be engaged in the hands-on non-managerial work, um, but it doesn't involve managing other people. So it's, it, it can be very hard to show how they're not engaged in this hands-on work when there's you can't show other people that they're managing to perform this hands-on work. Um, and then you've got, in addition to managers, you've got executives. And executives are, are essentially responsible for directing the management of the organization or a major component or function of the organization they essentially set policies and goals, and they have broad latitude to make important business decisions. They, they only operate with minimal supervision, generally just from the board of directors or, or something like that. 
Okay, thank you, TJ. And so you can see that's the part, that's the L1A part, as uh, TJ just explained. Then we have the L1B, which is the specialized knowledge employee. And these employees will have a detailed understanding of the company's products or services and the international markets for those products or services, or they have an advanced knowledge of the company's processes and procedures. And this knowledge is that which cannot be obtained, which and can only be obtained through experience with that employer. So if you can just work somewhere else and get it, then sorry, USCIS and the consulate's not going to approve the visa for your L1B candidate. And that such experience must be with proprietary software or methodologies that are unique to the employer, which is also important to the competitiveness of the company in the open market. So there's a lot of details in this that we need to get into, Adam. Yeah, it can be quite a confusing part of the L1 category, the specialized knowledge. Um, one of the things that's easily to get confused about is specialized knowledge versus specialty occupation. They are completely separate terms, and specialty occupation is just for H1B. Specialized knowledge is just for L1B. Now, when they're looking at this specialized knowledge and to see if the person meets the definition that, you're, that you presented to everyone, Sheila, USCIS is currently, and for, for uh, quite a few years now, has been actually applying a very high standard when they're processing these cases, and they're asking for evidence to show that this person not only has a specialized knowledge, but is even a key employee within the company. So they really, they're looking to see how, you know, that this person is, is really important to the company and not just somebody who knows about um, the product or software service that the company has. So, you know, it's, and, and while it's, it's not necessary for the person to have held the same position abroad as the intended job in the United States, um, as long as this person held a job either as a manager or executive or worked with specialized knowledge, um, they can then be transferred into the United States. And this is generally speaking because there are some, some exceptions. So you may have a situation where somebody um, worked as a, may have, you know, you may have a situation where you might consider somebody as really special and really important, and they may be, be highly valued within the organization, but it's worthwhile for that reason to look at the uh, all three types of L1 in order to um, make the best decision about how to bring it into the U.S. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Adam. And let's briefly talk about the time frames, TJ, because I know mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of time for today's pan discussion because it's such a complex uh, topic. And in 30 to 45 minutes, we're going to try to cover a lot of information. So obviously, there's a difference in H1 versus L1. So just let's touch, go sure. over it. So, so H1 is, is six years. And a, and a lot of people think that it's, it's the same for L's, L1Bs, and L1As. In fact, however, L1As get seven years while L1Bs only get five years. So that's the confusion, is you think I'll take the average of the two and it's six, I guess, one way or the other. Right, exactly, exactly. Right. And you can switch. Yeah, and, but I think it's important to also understand that time in H mm -hmm. counts as in, in your five or seven years in L. Um, and then also it's important to note that unlike the H, you don't get any you know one or three year extensions mm -hmm. based on a, any pending immigrant petitions or anything like that. Um, you must, once you run up against your five or seven years, you need to, to leave the country and then file. You can file again and get a fresh five or seven years after you've been out of the country for a year, assuming you're still working in the managerial or, or specialized knowledge capacity abroad. Um, and a little known provision, though, is that you can switch from L1B to L1A, but 
the change has to happen before the last six months of the five-year limit in the L-1B. So it's better to start preparing a year before because it may take three, four months to make sure you have a really strong and good case and you're not waiting till the 11th hour and trying to file a case because trust me, they're planning to deny and already denying or giving or issuing RFEs on almost every L-1 case if they can help it. Right. Exactly. Okay, so let's go next to the very common issue that most of us deal with for H's and for green cards, which is prevailing wage what is the prevailing wage requirement, Adam, for L1? So the the nice thing here is that there is no actual prevailing wage requirement for L1s like there is for H1s. There are a couple of things that you do need to be careful of. One, um, you need to make sure that your salary is c- otherwise complying with various state and federal employment laws. The Administrative Appeals Office recently issued a, d- a decision where they pointed out that some uh, an employer needs to comply with all these laws, including the Fair Labor Standards Act and minimum wage requirements. So that's important. The other thing that, d- that can come up but does not always is the Immigration Service may look at a salary in considering what the position you're offering. So if you have a specialized knowledge position, but the person's being paid very little, that may lead USCIS to question, is this really specialized knowledge? Or if this person is working as a manager, you know, is this person really working in a managerial role if you're paying, paying them peanuts? And these things can be on a case-by-case basis, but it is important to, to be mindful that even though there is no prevailing wage requirement, that the salary is something that does get looked at. Okay, thanks, Adam. So now there's been a lot, I think, over the last five or six years, and I'll come to you, TJ, where the USCIS and the consulates abroad are really looking at this off-site work and how does it work with consulting companies trying to send people, particularly L-1Bs, and it sounds like it applies only to the L-1B category employees, not L-1A categories, about all of these restrictions on offshore employment. So can you discuss that? Sure, sure. So so essentially, when an L-1B, and, and like Sheila said, not an L-1A, is, is placed at a company other than the petitioning employer's physical location, you need to establish two things. One of which is that the... Um, the petitioner will actually be exercising control over the work of the individual place at the third-party site. And that's the exact same type of control that you show with an H-1B filing when they're placed at a third-party site. The, the difference is you also have to show that, that they're going to be working on the petitioner's own product at that third-party site. So if a petitioner's got a sp- certain specialized product that the beneficiary is working on, they, they can't just go to that third-party site as, as labor for hire, essentially. They, they pretty much need to be working at that, at on that type of product, on that specialized knowledge product. Okay, um, you know, and then many of you are probably familiar with the term blanket L ones. It applies generally to larger companies, but let's quickly go over the criteria for those. So, a large company can utilize the L one blanket to pre-qualify. So you don't have to file individual L-1 petitions for each and every employee because you can use your blanket L-1 approval to transfer multiple employees under that one approved petition. Once the blanket L petition is approved, the company now can just transfer people on quickly on short notice because all they have to do is just go to the consulate for the visa instead of spending the filing fees and time and preparing a petition, getting RFEs and getting all of that. Um, so you file a special form called the I-129S which is submitted uh, to the U.S. consulate abroad to grant the individual the L-1 visa stamp in the passport so the person can, as we said, enter within a few days, a week or two. What are the basic eligibility requirements for the blanket L? One, the U.S. office has to be around for at least one year. In many cases, it's multiple years or much longer. Second, 
three or more branches, subsidiaries, or affiliates need to exist. And third, so you have to have one, two, and three, but one out of the three things in three, which is besides the three or more branches, subsidiaries, or affiliates, you need to have either U.S. annual sales of $25 million or a U.S. workforce of 1,000 employees or at least 10 L1 petition approvals, individual petition approvals within the past year for that employer. So those are the three criteria. And these, uh, the employee requirements for the employees are the same as for other L1s, except that specialized knowledge workers must be professionals in order to use the blanket admission procedure. And many of you see that denials at U.S. consulates, especially the person, for example, is working as a software engineer but doesn't have a bachelor's degree in software engineering, they're probably going to send it back. So... Again, as we had pointed out earlier, the, the employer must file the I-129 with, um, if, if the person is denied, then they have to file the individual petition uh, in that case. Um, let's go, so that was briefly touching on blankets. Now we want to go to other areas which include, involve challenges for L1 cases, including how can you show specialized knowledge or for new office L1 petitions and new office extensions. So, Adam, if I can ask you to discuss that. Sure. So let me start with the, uh, the specialized knowledge um, because they can be challenging uh, to try to show, show the qualification to USCIS because, because, as we all know, essentially what we're trying to show to USCIS is what this person knows, what's in their head. And you want to be able to document this so that um, USCIS is able to understand how they're compared to both people within the company or people outside the company. So um, th the specialized knowledge employee can qualify either because of a comparison to people within the company or outside, so that would be special knowledge of the company's products or services, um, or advanced knowledge of the company's processes or procedures. So the advanced knowledge would be advanced above other employees as, or special as compared to people outside of the company. And generally, it, it needs to be knowledge that can be obtained only through experience with the company, um, such as experience on a product that is unique to the company. Um, we, re we handle cases where it involves software, but those are all, um, unfortunately, significantly more challenging nowadays than, um, than they used to. But the important thing here also is to emphasize the importance of these individuals and their knowledge to the competitiveness of the company. And oftentimes, that, you know, that's going to involve showing actual dollar value of this person's knowledge, because that is something else you can use to try to create a concrete um, piece of evidence for USCIS to understand how this knowledge is specialized. Okay. And you know what we've seen is that many of these L1B specialized, specialized knowledge cases involve a situation where the company has developed proprietary products, which it then markets to the United States, and the company is in need of transferring its employees, generally key employees in many cases, who are experts on that particular product to travel to the United States and to work on either modifying or customizing and then implementing the product in real time in the United States. And what we're seeing in the IT software context, which is, of course, the big thing, and many of you on this call are probably very interested in the IT sort of software context, is that many companies are developing proprietary software. And so what has happened is that the USCIS does not simply accept that because your company developed the software that nobody else um, 
you know, is eligible for the L1 approval, uh, instead the USCIS will focus on why the person's knowledge of the company's proprietary software is either special or unique or complicated, that it requires this person from the company and why we can't give it to anybody else in the U.S. open market or from a different employer. Right, Sheila. So what immigration is looking for in these petitions is they first need to know what how do you define the specialized knowledge? And that's that's going to be the starting point. You're sort of setting the foundation for your case. But then you also need to explain, and this is really with as documentation as best as possible, how this employee gained the specialized knowledge to show that this person is, in fact, a specialized knowledge worker and that they gained it at your company, and then explain why this specialized knowledge is required for the U.S. position. And essentially, you're showing, in that sense, how this beneficiary of this petition is a key employee. And so when you define the specialized knowledge, um, you need to distinguish it from those things that are commonly or generally held. And one of the things that you know you can try to use is if you have patents or license agreements that um, can be used. Uh, and in these cases, what we try to do here at Murthy Law Firm is to go over the different kinds of documents that companies do have. Some things can be useful. Some things really aren't, even if at first glance they may. Like we often see have people ask us, oh, well, my employee received some training. Um, however, if the what we often see is that this training is involved as something that many employees receive and that really just took place in maybe a matter of weeks. And frankly, from USCIS's perspective, if this training that a company is saying is how specialized knowledge was gained took place in just a couple of weeks, well, then that training could be given to a U.S. worker who never had this knowledge. So those are things to keep in mind in gathering your evidence. Especially in this Buy American, Hire American executive order and this climate that we are dealing with. DJ? What about documentation? So it's certainly that's I think that's one of the the most difficult parts of preparing a strong L1B case is documenting how the employee actually gained the specialized knowledge. For many IT companies that develop proprietary products, the beneficiary may be the actual technical developer of the actual product. It's less of a strong case, however, um, if the beneficiary just develops some modules that are that are part of the software itself. Okay. So in a situation where the beneficiaries created something used by the company, that person may have given training to other employees. And that is actually really good because you can show that the sort of the sum total of this knowledge is being held with this worker. And that person who you now want to bring to the U.S. on L1B is sharing this knowledge and spreading it throughout the company. And so you may also have uh, project documents or other technical documents that are used by the company that have actually been authored by the the worker. And in those situations, it is important for the documents to actually indicate this person is an author when you're presenting it to USCIS. Okay. And we have also we also discuss how the specialized knowledge makes the uh, L1A or L1B beneficiary a key employee. The USCIS holds that the position holds takes the position that if everybody holds the same level of knowledge within your company, then according to their logic, nobody possesses the specialized knowledge, especially when your company has a large number of employees. Hence, the focus for you as an employer needs to be to explain why it would not be possible for the company to move forward without having an employee with this knowledge and how difficult it is to impart this knowledge to a brand new employee. 
Also, the, um, uh, the company can present evidence of the employee's past significant achievements. It's also helpful to show the monetary loss the company would suffer if the employee is not allowed to obtain the visa or tra travel to the United States. And in terms of new office and new office extensions, uh, what's the difference and how does it work, DJ? So essentially, you know, there, there's a situation where there's a foreign company, but there's really no U.S. entity. So, you know, is this person eligible for, for an L1A or L1B? Many, many businesses then, in this case, decide to, you know, they're ambitious and they decide to start their a U.S. operation, U.S. subsidiary, U.S. affiliate of their foreign company. And they often want to transfer, you know, one of their employees abroad to help establish this U.S. operation and to get it off the ground. And we've assisted lots of international companies in transferring their executives and managers for their new U.S. Op their new operation, util utilizing what's known as essentially the L1A new office petition. And the, the new office petition allows the L1 worker to perform non-managerial or non-executive tasks for a limited period of time in order to get the business started and running. Um, for the purposes of the L visa, the new office is defined as an operation being in existence for less than one year. When filing an L-1 petition to transfer an executive or manager to the new office, the company is required to submit certain additional types of evidence that, that are specific to the new office and not as, you know. Okay, so Adam, what are the new kinds of evidence? So they, you need to show that you have your, the company will have physical premises that are large enough to house the operations you're going to have. So depending on the business that you're setting up, you may need you may be okay with a smaller space versus a large space, and you need to clearly document what the space looks like, the size of it, um, and you are also going to be showing that the transferee, the the person working abroad, has been employed for the foreign company for at least one year in the three year period before you're filing this petition, and this in, this will involve work as an executive or manager. It is possible to file a new office petition for an L1B worker. But um, that has different requirements, which we're not going to get into. So for the new office, L1A, um, unlike other types of Ls, the person you're transferring to the U.S. needs to have actually worked abroad as an executive or manager. Correct. DJ, and what is the other evidence? You, you essentially want evidence showing that the new U.S. company, within one year of the approval of the petition, will support the need for a traditional executive or managerial position. You show this by explaining the proposed nature of the office, outlining the scope of the business, organizational structure, and financial goals. And the best way to do this is to, uh, to submit a very detailed business plan that will explain these things. The business plan should be one that, that these petitioners actually follow closely if the new office is approved, because USCIS could want to know why they should give you an extension after this one-year period where the anticipated hires were made, was business undertaken, and is the company still viable? And the size of the U.S. investment and financial ability of the foreign entity to pay the beneficiary's salary and to commence business in the U.S. is, is also something that USCIS typically wants to see. Um, and they want to see also evidence of the actual money that the foreign company has spent on the new U.S. office. And, and something that we've been seeing more frequently is USCIS is now routinely requesting evidence that the foreign company has actually wired or transferred its capital contributions to start the U.S. entity's operations. And this investment should typically be consistent with the capital contribution indicated in the business plan. And another thing you want to show is an organizational structure of the foreign entity 
and and show how that is used um, to show that the the foreign position is a managerial or executive position. Yeah, as well. and you know a lot of these are sort of outside the scope. Most uh, a business lawyer or corporate lawyer would probably do it, but not necessarily an immigration lawyer. And so at the Multi Law Firm, we work very closely with business corporate uh, lawyers. Uh, if the company has their own, we are happy to work with them. If you want us to suggest somebody, they'll work with you, prov- provide the business plan, really flush it out and try to make it happen so that your candidate employee or employees will be eligible for either the L1A or the L1B. Also, there are special factors in addition to the regular L1 petition requirements because with a new office L1 petition, as most of you, as we may have briefly mentioned before, it's valid only for one year, which means that an extension petition must be filed on behalf of that employee prior to the end of the one-year period. And if you're traveling in and out and not here and you don't, like we had said earlier, expand, grow, higher the number of employees, et cetera, that you mentioned in your business plan, you your L1 extension could very well get either... If you're lucky, just an RFE, or if you're really unlucky, get denied. Right. And sometimes USCIS will, um, in their discretion, give you another new office one-year approval. But um, that's not in the regulation. It's really as a matter of discretion. When you're filing the new office extension, they're, they're really looking to see that everything that you said would happen at the end of the first year has actually happened. And that really means that at the end of this first year, the L1A worker is not performing non-qualifying duties, meaning that the person's working primarily as an executive or as a manager at the end of this year. And so what the petition needs to show, and USAS will issue an RFE to ask this question if it's not clear, they want to know um, the, the things that you did. What were the duties actually executed that were not managerial or executive during that first year? And besides telling immigration, what are the primarily managerial or executive duties that you will be doing during the, um, the period of extension that you've asked for? Okay. And what are the other factors to consider, TJ? I think it's also in, extremely important to in, invest the time in developing the new business during that one-year period and hiring the people that that you said to USCIS that you would hire generally in the business plan. So if in the business plan you said within a year we're going to have five individuals, you should have those five individuals hired within the end of that first year. And this to show that the beneficiary is no longer working in a, in a hands-on role, but is, is, is able to take that next step and act as a manager or an executive. And if you, if you don't meet those requirements, USCIS isn't necessarily interested in the reasons why the business could not support an executive or a manager. And Adam touched upon this a little bit, that it's sometimes possible to get a second new year, second one-year new office approval. However, at the end of that second year, you better ha- have met all the requirements that you said you would, or it's, it's not going to get approved. Yeah, and it's a lot of investment for companies to invest oodles of time, money, effort, energy, uh, and, and find that their extension after a year or two, it's almost better if the government hadn't approved it in the first place. Uh, but really, the extension L1 petition... Uh, after the completion of the one year must show all of the following four factors, which is one, the evidence that the U.S. and the foreign entities are still continuing to qualify as qualifying organizations, two, that the U.S. company has been doing business for the previous year, three, the statement describing the staffing of the new operation, including number of employees, types of positions, Uh, held by the different people, accompanied by evidence of the wages that are paid to the employees, and evidence of the financial status of the U.S. operation. Adam? So another, so as I said before, um, they really want to see 
both the duties that were performed during the year that were not qualifying, and the it's not enough that you're filing a petition for this extension uh, after the new office to say this person's working in this executive or managerial role. Um, they do want to see what were the non-managerial and non-executive things that you did during the year. It's not really clear or, or doesn't seem to make, make much sense why, because if on the face of the petition the person will be working as a manager or executive now and they have the staffing and you're showing the people employed by the company with the organizational chart, we have seen this and we have also seen USCIS still a- ask with their request for evidence, but, but what did you do that wasn't during the past year? So it is important, even if it doesn't seem to make much sense, to include that information to try to uh, minimize the chance of that RFE coming. And so when... Um, when you're preparing the extension petition, I think what happens oftentimes is companies find themselves caught between two conflicting needs. To minimize the expense and delay hiring new employees, sort of a practical business need, and to expand the company and establish that this person will be working in an executive or managerial position. Um, I think probably the best thing to do is sort of not overpromise when you're doing your business plan, um, but be, do something that's reasonable. But you know, be mindful that USCIS has specific legal requirements that they're going to need to have satisfied to approve that L1 petition. Okay. You know, I just think it's it's ultimately it's just important to plan ahead for the U.S. business operation, while also carefully considering the immigration consequences of those business plans. Yeah. So as you can see from this discussion that uh, Adam, TJ, and myself are having. L1s, which were comparatively routine maybe 10 years ago, are becoming more and more highly scrutinized. USCIS is using this as an opportunity to issue RFEs, especially with consulting company type of positions. Employers, of course, are desperate when the H-1B cap has been met uh, on the first four or five days of April uh, to tell somebody you have to wait a year and a half to think of bringing somebody for your company uh, is clearly you know, a problem, which is why companies are trying to qualify under the L1 program, uh, but USCIS is sort of trying to look under the hood very carefully to see and almost use as excuses reasons to try and deny the petition and cases where the petition gets approved, the U.S. consulates then do a fresh set of review and go through the analysis again to ask whether the person really deserves to come in on the L1A or the L1B status. Uh, Also from our discussion, we hope you can appreciate and understand how incredibly talented and experienced and knowledgeable the brilliant multi-law firm attorneys are and the experience that we have in doing hundreds and hundreds of these cases over the years uh, in getting approvals and in answering difficult RFEs, in helping and set up the business plans and working with you to make sure that you and your company can succeed by working with the best immigration law firm in the world. With that, on behalf of Adam Rosen, TJ, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy law firm team, we thank you so much for joining us for today's conference call, and we look forward to you to seeing you, I guess, next month at the next monthly conference call. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye-bye.